4: Hello, Angry Planet listeners. This is Matthew up here at the top with an introduction to this uh, remastered rerun edition of Angry Planet. It is the holidays and Jason, Kevin, and I are taking a little bit of a break. Uh, Jason and I will be back uh, next week or the week after uh, for a very weird episode that's just going to be us talking about cyberpunk. Um, But I don't want to leave y'all hanging without content. So what I've done here is I've got... Um, two episodes from our past. One is incredibly ancient about special operations forces because they've been in the news a lot lately and there's been just some discussion about their behavior, um, their place in the American military. Uh, you know, if you've been following the Australia story, uh, you know, the, the operator culture in other countries. Uh, has come up. So the first conversation is going to be from the old Reuters days. Um, it's a conversation with Sean Naylor about the history of JSOC. And if you don't know what that is, you're about to learn. The second one is one of our more uh, popular episodes. It's kind of a breakdown of Spartan and operator culture with a military ethicist and a uh, former operator himself. I hope you enjoy both of these. If you are a premium subscriber, uh, there is a premium episode coming this week. It's a conversation with myself and Jake Hanrahan about his recent documentary about um, 3D printed weapons and his experiences in Europe. If you want to get access to that, go to angryplanetpod.com to sign up. It's just $9 a month. We'll give you two bonus episodes regardless of the holiday season. Uh, without further ado, here is a blast from the
0: past. One day, all of the facts
1: in about 30 years' time will be published.
3: When
0: genocide has been carried out in this country almost with infinity, and when it is near to completion, people talk about intervention.
4: They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen
3: before.
0: Jason Fields, Reuters opinion editor. And I'm Matthew Galt with Wars Boring. Today, we're talking with veteran war reporter Sean Naylor. He began his career writing for Army Times. He's written several books and is a contributing editor at Foreign Policy. His new book is Relentless Strike, The Secret History of Joint Special Operations Command. A recent review of the book goes so far as to accuse Sean of exposing valuable secrets that should have remained hidden. For a journalist, that's kind of a rave. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Uh, Thank you guys
0: for having me. I appreciate it. So could you just start off by simply telling us what
2: uh, the Joint Special Operations Command is? Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC as it's uh, more commonly known, is the command that that runs the United States' most sensitive special operations missions. Um, Examples include the missions that captured Saddam Hussein rescued Captain Phillips from pirates off of Somalia and uh, killed Osama bin Laden but but as, as I explain in the book, those those events are uh, the ones that come to the public's attention, they are just the tip of the JSOC iceberg that has been created over the last uh, 30 years.
4: Take us through a little bit of that beginning history Sean, um, when did the Pentagon create JSOC and why did it create JSOC?
2: The Pentagon created JSOC in, in late 1980 in response to the failed mission to rescue the U.S. hostages in Iran. You know, that, that mission was conducted by an ad hoc task force comprised of units unused to working together uh, with a similarly ad hoc headquarters running the show. And it, its failure was a huge blow to American prestige. And so to minimize the, the risks of a, of a repeat... Uh, the Pentagon decided it needed a permanent counter-terrorist joint task force to run such missions from then on, and and it established JSOC as that force.
4: Which special mission units are we talking about that JSOC controls?
2: The two best-known special mission units under JSOC's control are the Army's Delta Force, which was established in in the late 1970s, a couple of years before JSOC, and the Navy's SEAL Team 6, which was created almost simultaneously with JSOC. Now, now, both of these units focus primarily on direct action, that is, missions that involve capturing or killing enemies and or rescuing hostages. But but as I detail in Relentless Strike, over the years, their, their role as intelligence gatherers has also grown. And each of those units now has a squadron dedicated to low visibility missions and, and intelligence gathering. But jsoc includes uh, several other special mission units uh, uh, in addition to those two very well-known ones. The other ones include the Air Force's uh, 24th Special Tactics Squadron, which coordinates airstrikes and provides pararescue medical personnel. Uh, another Air Force unit that conducts what is called Covered Air, basically uh, an undercover unit with civilian-style aircraft, and perhaps the most interesting of all, a unit that's gone by various names over the years, including uh, since uh, 2003, uh, Task Force Orange as a, as a nickname, uh, and that's an Army unit that conducts human and signals intelligence gathering. And uh, you know, I have a chapter, you know, for instance, in my book dedicated uh, to some of the uh, very daring undercover work that uh, that Task Force Orange operatives did in in Syria at the height of the Iraq War. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what they did? They infiltrated uh, Syria, I believe, prior to the onset of hostilities with with the, uh, with Iraq, as part of a plan to try to uh, get operatives in as many countries around Iraq as as possible. Once the fight in Iraq became uh, a fight against al-Qaeda in Iraq, that program of infiltrating uh, U.S. operatives into, JSOC operatives into uh, into Syria was used to conduct espionage against the foreign fighters that were flowing through uh, Syria and swelling the ranks of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq organization. So, I mean, the, the, some of the stories I relate in in my book, inc- you know, include uh, you know actually breaking into Al-Qaeda foreign fighter safe houses in Syria with lockpick kits and copying all the data there and you know, really old school uh, espionage stuff with disguises and secret recording devices on their persons and and so forth and so on.
4: Stuff that sounds like a Mission Impossible movie, almost. Uh,
2: Yes, maybe, probably with fewer explosions. (laughs) (laughs) At least if things were
0: going right. Um, So can I just ask, I I know it's going backwards a little bit, but um, JSOC, and uh, the Special Operations Command, because there is a separate Special Operations Command, is that right?
2: There, there is a, a U.S. Special Operations Command, but it did not come into existence until about 1987. Um, so when when JSOC was created, there, there was no four star headquarters that uh, that you know had oversight of all U.S. special operations forces. The way that there is uh, that there is now with U.S. Special Operations Command.
0: Okay, so uh, so special oper- so which actually is in control
2: then? Well, so Joint Special Operations Command um, is the command that is sometimes referred to as the National Mission Force, and uh, when the U.S. government uh, wants something accomplished in a particular part of the world, that it want you know it. It will give that mission, if if suitable, to uh, to JSOC. US Special Operations Command, for most of its existence, was a sort of a what's a, what's called a Title Ten headquarters, um, which means that it was in charge of sort of training and equipping uh, forces, but it it's it wasn't an operational headquarters once. Once a JSOC force was sent to the Middle East, for instance, it would come under U.S. Central Command. SOCOM is the administrative headquarters for JSOC, um, but it's not—it's uh, not the one that's running the missions.
0: Okay, all right, thanks. That—that that, that helps a lot, actually. Um, so, during the uh, first twenty years that it's been around. Um, how often do they get to run missions? I mean, how often do these missions actually take place?
2: JSOC ran quite a few missions or, or conducted quite a few missions in the, its first 20 years, but they weren't the sort of missions uh, for which JSOC was originally conceived. While JSOC personnel advised other countries' special operations forces uh, you, know, in, you know, who were conducting hostage rescues in places like Sudan, Thailand, and even Curacao. The closest JSOC got to doing its own missions of that type was in 1985, when the command twice deployed uh, task forces to the Mediterranean, prepared to rescue the hostages on TWA flight 847, which had been hijacked by Shia terrorists and eventually flown to Beirut as well as the Achille Loro, which was a cruise liner hijacked by Palestinian terrorists and sailed around the eastern Mediterranean. But on each occasion, the, the White House never gave the green light for action. you know. And it was experiences like this that, that led General Pete Schoomaker, who commanded JSOC in the mid-1990s, to compare JSOC during this period to, to a brand new Ferrari that was being kept in the garage out of concern that if it was taken out to, to race, the fender might get dented. That's the story of why JSOC didn't didn't conduct the sort of missions that it uh, that that it was originally created to conduct, the sort of the classic hostage rescue missions that uh, you know that that seemed to be sort of all the rage in the in the late 70s. Um, but they did conduct quite a few real-world missions to include uh, spearheading. The invasions of both Grenada in 1983 and Panama in 1989, several manhunting hunting operations, uh, including uh, the hunt for Pablo Escobar, in which they worked, you know, very closely with Colombian, uh, you know, Pablo Escobar being a Colombian cocaine kingpin in the early 1990s, and and they worked very closely with uh, with uh, Colombian security forces there. Um, the hunt. Uh, unsuccessful hunt at the time for uh, Mohamed Farah Aidid, the uh, Somali warlord, um, which which ended in the uh, October 1993 Battle of Mogadishu, memorialized in, in the book and, and the movie Black Hawk Down, as well as in the aftermath of the Dayton Peace Accords in the mid-90s. Uh, JSOC was given the mission of hunting down Balkan War criminals uh, to be put on trial uh, at the Hague. And, and
0: they were actually very successful with that, if if I uh, understand right.
2: Yes, 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 they were. Um, there were there were a, quite a number of uh, successful snatches and and or in, in in one or two cases kills in that period in in the Balkans, and they involved some um, sort of some fairly out of the box methods as well, uh, including. You know, in, in at least one case, I believe a catapult net that was fired at a moving car to to ensnare it and immobilize it, so that uh, operators could then emerge from the hedgerows and smash the windows in and and drag their target out. Um, and <laughs> do they have a lot of things like that? I mean, do they? <laughs> uh, that
0: does sound like something I've never heard of before.
2: Yeah, they they probably had a, a few. I mean, I know that they were experimenting with ways to remotely. Uh, Sort of interfere with with cars by by that period um, so uh, you know I, I one suspects that for all the sort of juicy detail that's that's in my book I would imagine that the, the stuff that uh, these days might be the most cutting edge is, is you know is probably retained in just a few uh, a few mines in uh, at, at Fort Bragg and uh, Damneck Virginia.
4: All right, so they go through these first kind of 20 years, and then September 11th happens. Um, what kind of position was JSOC in at that time, and then how were they used in the first few months after September 11th?
2: On September the 11th, 2001, JSOC was actually about to start one of what had become the, uh, its sort of massive quarterly exercises, uh, which were called joint readiness exercises, or JRXs. And, and this one had a JSOC task force headquartered at a military airfield in Tezar, Hungary, with small elements scattered, uh, all across Europe. And the, the focus of the exercise, as with most such JSOC exercises by then, was a, was counter proliferation. JSOC had in the 1980s been handed the mission for, uh, of, of counter proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Um, and this this exercise was sort of a, a sort of a loose nuke exercise. But the exercise also exemplified what what many insiders felt had become uh, a problem, uh, which was that JSOC had had become wedded to this operational template in which a big headquarters and many hundreds of personnel had to be airlifted on dozens of transport aircraft to conduct any mission that JSOC was given. Um, and in the critics' eyes, this this robbed JSOC of its ability to respond nimbly, uh, let alone clandestinely.
0: Right, yeah, not very stealthy if it takes, uh, <laughs> it takes a whole squadron to get you there.
2: If you have to fly C-5 after C-5 or C-17 after C-17, big transport aircraft anywhere, um, it's very difficult to keep that secret uh, from the locals. Someone's local
0: going to notice. Yeah. So-
2: someone's really going to notice. The, the initial plans on, on how to use JSOC in, in, the, in Afghanistan in the immediate wake of 9-11 sort of seemed to confirm the, the sort of critics' view that JSOC had become this sort of unwieldy, top-heavy organization. You know, the JSOC commander at the time, Major General Del Daly, wanted to use JSOC to make a statement rather than to sort of to hunt down and, and kill the most senior al-Qaeda and Taliban figures. Although it should be said that he was probably coming under some pressure from from his military and civilian chain of uh, command uh, in in this regard. Uh, So JSOC actually spent a number of weeks planning a raid on a fertilizer plant in northern Afghanistan that some sort of very thin, dubious intelligence reports uh, had suggested might be a, a chemical or biological weapons facility you know and the the idea was that delta force were going to uh, assault this this facility but when the, when the lead delta force planner in in jsoc's planning team proposed a uh, a very stealthy raid daily the jsoc commander got got angry and indicated that you know what he actually wanted was a big televised production now in the end that the, the, the raid didn't happen as as jsoc found out that it could It was initially looking at targets in northern Afghanistan because it thought it was going to have to fly out of uh, Central Asia into Afghanistan um, to do the raids. But uh, once it found that it could base itself on the island of Masira off of Oman and use an aircraft carrier uh, to launch raids into the Taliban's heartland in southern Afghanistan, Uh, the targets in northern Afghanistan just faded in importance, which was probably just as well because the fertilizer factory turned out later to be just that.
0: I guess we saved uh, ourselves a little bit of embarrassment there. Is uh, Joint Special Operations Command likely to be participating in a fight against uh, Islamic State? If so, uh, what kind of roles would you think it would have?
2: Yes, uh, it it already is participating in in that fight and has been actually for some time. JSOC uh, has a task force operating out of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, um, uh, basically working with the CIA to target uh, Islamic State leadership. Um, So when you hear about a drone strike taking out a senior... Islamic state figure there's a good chance that a JsOC targeting folder was uh, you know at the root of, of, of that and JsOC has its own has its own drones that are, that are conducting those uh, those missions um, JSOC has also been involved in uh, multiple raids into Islamic uh, state held territory including the July 2014 raid um, that uh, just missed James Foley and the other U.S. and the other U.S. Countries. and as I as I detail in my book that in fact that, that raid was notable in part because uh, JSOC used the uh, same model, roughly, of, of, of stealth uh, Black Hawk helicopter that it used in the uh, in the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad. You know, one of which uh, uh, famously uh, crash landed uh, at the compound.
0: Right, in which they then uh, at least made an effort to destroy, so that the secrets wouldn't uh, be av- made available to the Pakistanis. Right,
2: that's right. But um, unfortunately, the, the I, whatever they used probably thermite like grenades to destroy the airframe left the uh, left the tail uh, boom intact.
0: So there's one thing that you mentioned really early on when we we're talking about the various constituents uh, that fit under JSOC. I'm just really curious about the stealth. Aircraft. Um, you, it, you said it was part of the air force, and uh, do they? How do they operate? I mean, do they look like commercial liners? Or
2: yeah, and I just want to be clear on the on the on the terminology. So the stealth helicopters that I was talking about are are the ones with stealth stealthy characteristics, but they're military helicopters, sort of like a stealth fighter. Same same idea. The covered aircraft, I believe, is what you're referring to. The air force and and in fact, the army in Delta Force both have uh, covered aircraft capabilities. Task Force Orange also has covered aircraft. So you've got a, a minimum of three uh, sets of, of aircraft uh, as I'm as I'm counting. Uh, the Air Force uh, unit includes larger aircraft that can sort of fly a force somewhere. But it looks like it's just another uh, sort of regular uh, civilian. Uh, sort of cargo plane. Delta Force uh, unit, which is Delta's E-Squadron or Echo Squadron, um, is, is uh, mostly helicopters, and they do a variety of tasks, but mostly uh, they move uh, folks from A to B undercover, um, or they can be weaponized in in a, in a foreign country. And, uh, and, you know, so you fly in a civilian helicopter... Uh, basically, add weapons to it at a remote airfield somewhere in you know, Central America or, or somewhere else, and then uh, and then you've got a, uh, an, an attack helicopter. And then Task Force Orange, the 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 sort of intelligence uh, unit, uses a fleet of aircraft uh, to uh, carry its uh, its signals intelligence gear and so uh you know they they can also be be made to appear quite quite benign
0: back to your book while you were doing the research for it what was the most surprising thing you discovered or have you been involved in this uh reporting on this for such a long time that none of it was particularly surprising
2: to you no there were a few there there were a few things that that I that I was sort of su- surprised at or 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 Sort of really impressed by one. One was the the missions that we've already talked about into Syria, the undercover espionage missions. And another was, this is actually, I believe, a CIA accomplishment, Um, but uh, uh, JSOC uh, and CIA were both involved in in the hunt for uh, uh, Al Alaki, the um, Yemeni American preacher who was killed, who was killed, who was part of. Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and he was killed in the I think he was the publisher of
0: Inspire as well. Yeah, which is an uh, English language publication intended to uh, lure uh, Westerners to join uh, the jihad. I think.
2: And, and I was told by by somebody in, in, involved in in, uh, in that that uh, uh, the CIA actually had managed to um, install a. Camera in the car that Alaki was riding in that was transmitting moving pictures in real time you know sort of basically installed in the dashboard or something looking looking backwards and was able to transmit pictures in real time that that proved that Alaki was actually riding in the vehicle that allowed the CIA i believe at that time to uh, to pull the trigger on the drone as, as it were and, and kill him um, I think there was the, also the fact that Uh, SEAL Team 6, for years, trained for and kept a unit on standby in Afghanistan for a mission to conduct a free-fall parachute jump into the Pakistani tribal areas if actionable intelligence on bin Laden's whereabouts uh, was ever obtained. Um, So that was the actual plan A for a long time uh, was...
4: Like like a like a halo jump. Yeah,
2: it would have been probably a hey ho jump. So high altitude, high opening. So in other words, you jump out of the you jump out of the plane at you know maybe twenty five thousand feet. Maybe just a plane flying along the Afghanistan side of the border, and then you use your uh, sort of free fall parachute to steer yourself to a very pre- you know riding on the wind, as it were, to a very precise location, and you you know SEAL Team Six trained for this so often that they could put, you know, uh, dozens of, dozens of operators down at the same point, maybe 20 or 30 kilometers uh, from where they jumped out of the, uh, jumped out of the plank.
0: Impressive as that is, it also proves out that we really had no idea where Bin Laden was.
2: That's correct. Although he wasn't always uh, in Abadabad, obviously. Even when he was detected in Abbottabad, and the, the planning was underway for the mission that became Operation Neptune's Spear, a mission to, to kill him in Abbottabad. Some in, in Team 6 felt more comfortable doing the freefall mission to get him, even though it would probably have required flying some distance into Pakistan before the operators jumped out of the plane, than they were with the, with the stealth helicopter uh, approach, which was what uh, JSOC C- commander Bill McRaven eventually opted for.
0: There's one aspect of your book that I'm kind of interested in. I, I hadn't really thought about it too much until I read uh, a review in Foreign Policy, which you actually write for, right?
2: Um, yes, yeah, I'm a contributing editor at Foreign Policy, yes. And, and previously was a staff-, a staff writer there.
0: The headline on the piece uh, was, uh, Naylor's book is very good, but I've got some issues with the people who blabbed and um I'm sure you uh uh I'm sure you remember the article uh and uh it just it brings up I mean, the point of the article seems to be not just to praise your book but uh to say that you know now all of the good tricks are you know out of the bag, and uh you know this will actually compromise the uh effectiveness of jsOC. Um, and I wondered if that was something, uh, whether or not it's true, I wonder if that was something that at all concerned you while you were doing the work on the book.
2: It, it certainly did. Um, you know, I, I obviously had to trust my, my sources in many cases who are, if anything, far more invested in, in keeping information that would be of real value to, uh, an enemy of the United States secret, um. And especially, you know, because they'd grown up in 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 uh, in JSOC and in the special mission units, and uh, you know, I, I sort of had to trust that if uh, if uh, somebody with with many years of experience is telling me something that he or she uh, has has come to the conclusion that this is not actually dangerous. Bear in mind that my book covers thirty plus years of history, 34 years of history. So, much of the action and many of the techniques that are being described are years old. Just because something was cutting edge in 2005 or 2008 doesn't mean it's cutting edge in, in late 2015. So, I mean, that would be one one obvious uh, uh, point that I, that I would make. And I actually kept a number of names, for instance, out of the book at, at people's request. Um, so, I... You know, I think that the JSOC story is very important. Um, It's been the the U.S. military's main effort in the war on terror. And and sort of keeping it hidden from the U.S. public would be like uh, keeping secret the the accomplishments of of Patton's Third Army in Europe during World War II. And and the American people funded JSOC at at considerable, albeit classified, expense. You know, they filled it with their sons and daughters, and it is waging war in their name. And others disagree, and I respect their views, but I, I think the American public has has every right to know the history of this command and, and its extraordinary people.
0: Well, thank you very much. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Um, so, Sean Naylor, uh, it's uh, terrific to speak with you today. We really appreciate your time. And uh, just also, uh, I figure it can't hurt to mention the name of your book again. Uh, it's also going to be Posted uh, along with uh, links to everything else. Um, Relentless Strike: The Secret History of Joint Special Operations Command. And uh, is that available now?
2: Oh yes, it's yes, it is available. It's very
0: now. good. Yeah.
4: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Derek Cannon. When you hear the word Sparta, there's an immediate association with war and the military. Of the Greek city-states, it's the one most associated with battle. Spartan men were expected to be warriors, and their society was geared almost entirely towards training for war. For generations, military leaders have drawn inspiration from Sparta. Much of the romance around it centers around the Battle of Thermopylae where the Persian Empire crushed a small and ill-equipped collection of elite soldiers. Since then, historians, Hollywood, and the American military have turned Sparta's epic defeat at the gates of fire into a myth of slavery versus freedom, East versus West, and democracy versus despotism. But the thing is, a lot of what you hear about the Spartans is bullshit. The truth is more complicated. Here to help us unpack the modern-day mythos around Sparta is Pauline Corinne. Corinne is the Chair of Military Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College and the author of The Warrior, Military Ethics and Contemporary Warfare, Achilles Goes Asymmetrical. Pauline, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
4: All right, this is going to be more of a roundtable episode, because I know Derek has quite a bit to say about this, because he's experienced a lot of it firsthand, uh, this Spartan culture. And also our producer, Kevin Nodell, is here, and he's going to be speaking to it quite a bit, because as a military journalist himself, he has also got a lot of firsthand experience with this. All right, so I want to start a little unconventionally. Derek, you're a former operator. Kevin, you spend a lot of time with service members. You're both steeped in this military culture uh what's the deal with the Sparta stuff Derek what did you see when you were in how pervasive is it
3: it's pretty there's it's it's a lot of units are even just it's pretty pervasive actually I, I was going to try to church it up but there's a lot of Spartan helmets and a lot of you know Sparta battle cries especially when I was in and I was younger it's just, it's just they're Everyone's really into it. They're like, you know, we're super elite Spartans, you know, you know, holding back the hordes of the, of the Islamic or other evils that are, that are headed towards the gates of New York or, or what I just, it's just this huge, giant, steeping pile of manliness, romanticized shields of the bygone era of Greek and Roman mythology. It's, it's super weird to me. There, there I said it. It's very weird, but it's motivational. It really is. I mean it's it's super motivational. I mean there's I I am not going to lie to you. I had a legion patch on my on my armor and I thought it was cool. But you really don't know anything about it. You're like, yeah, you know, we're we're Spartans, we're we're holding back the hordes of evil kind of thing and it, they just kind of capitalize on that. But you don't really know anything else about it. They just know that they had cool helmets and they uh didn't survive basically. They just got slaughtered, but
5: yeah, I I I've I've seen a lot of the same sort of things. It's also just all, all over t-shirts. Uh, people kind of recount this as just a core part of it. Like it's the ultimate warrior archetype and everybody seems to want to emulate it. Uh, everybody reads books about the Spartans. You see a lot of Spartan tattoos. Um, I, I, some of my personal experiences we might get into a little bit later, but yeah, I, I can just reiterate everything Derek said there.
3: I mean, Matt, if you, if, let me let me let me clarify what I was trying to say. It's like Kevin's right. There's a lot of tattoos. It's, it's think about it like this. There's you got guys in the military, and that's their, you know, their their. It's like their high school, uh, you know, mascot. I, I don't want to say high. It's like a high school or college mascot. When they go in the military, it's like, hey, hi, you, here you are. One of the, you know, you, you're a legionnaire or you're a spartite. And, you know, this is all this pride is around this specific symbol. It's, 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 it's a lot of symbolism and people get tattoos. You wear t-shirts of it. There's, you know, there's inner platoon or even, even, and even inter-company rivalries of, of who's more Spartan <laughs> than the other, you know, and it's just. Like, do you know much about the Spartans and you know throwing babies off cliffs and, and things like that? Like, that's not what we're trying to do. I want to
4: go to Pauline now, then, because I, I want I want to know exactly what are what are Spartan values and why did this become a particular fascination for the American military?
1: Um, I, I think it's a that's a really good question. I mean, I think part of it is, uh you know, the the Spartan values, I mean, I I think the big thing Derek mentioned in in terms of motivation is discipline. I mean, the Spartans were very disciplined. They trained from a very young age. Boys started when they were seven. They were separated from from their uh, mothers and they were taken into this military training. It's very tough, um, you know, uh, difficult. Uh, there's a lot of deprivation, so there's a lot of focus on physical strength, um, which I think maybe that's the part of the attraction um, there. There, the elite piece is important too. There's a separation from society. Um, so uh, in Sparta, the warriors were a separate class and intentionally. Separate and and we're, were elite in a in an elitist kind of way, um, in, in the sense that they viewed themselves as better than the rest of the society, and I, I think in some ways the society viewed them that way as well. And there's also, I mean, it's a highly it's a particular version of masculinity as well. So I wonder if if that is part of the attraction. It's also, I think there's also an esprit de corps and a very, it's a uh, culturally a a homogeneous group, right? It's not, it's not a bastion of multiculturalism. So I wonder if all of those things, uh, I'm a little perplexed as to what the attraction is. I, I suspect it's the elite piece, and that the discipline is something that's that's motivating to people in the sense of identity. I think for Spartan warriors, it wasn't. It wasn't something they did; it was something they were. In fact, you know, I know you all know the film Three Hundred. There's a famous scene in there where where that point is made over over and against the Athenians. So there's an encounter with the Athenian group, and uh, you know the the king Leonidas, you know, sort of asks them like, "How many soldiers did you bring?" And the point there is that all of the Spartans. Are soldiers. That's who they are. The Athenians are farmers and politicians and and tradesmen, and they have these other occupations. And they also fight. But the Spartans are soldiers. That's who they are, existentially. Um, And so there's a difference between that kind of existential piece and being in the military as a job. And so I wonder if that also is part of the attraction. Although that's really odd. Because American soldiers aren't warriors. I mean, they 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 don't go into the military when they're seven, and at some point you leave the military. So, so it's it's something that I find interesting and rather perplexing.
4: Something, something you just said, I kind of want to drill in on. Um, you said that they were viewed this way. Not they didn't. It wasn't just themselves that they kind of viewed this way. It was also the society at large. And are you talking about Spartan society specifically or like Hellenic society at that time? Like, did the other city states view them in the same way that they viewed themselves?
1: Uh, in, in terms of their own society, I think, you know, the, the warrior class was definitely viewed as elite and, you know, <clears throat> in the mode of, of protecting Sparta. So I think they viewed themselves that way, certainly across the Hellenic world there was a a great deal of, of sort of disagreement. I mean, I think they were held in awe. I think they were viewed as, uh, you know, formidable warriors. Um, Plato, for example, doesn't have a lot nice to say about the Spartans. So actually his Republic and his discussion of his, of his guardians is a direct critique of the Spartans. So, um, and he's not the only one, right. Um, you know, Aristotle has in his discussion of courage has some critiques as well. So I think there's more. Uh, there would be more variance, uh, you know, in outside of Sparta in terms of how Spartans were viewed. I think they were they were viewed as formidable warriors for sure. Uh, whether whether that was always seen as a good thing or not, I think is certainly up for dispute.
5: I want to jump in here with something on that, actually. Um, one thing that I think is interesting about this and also that contrast that they like to draw between Spartans and the Athenians is that when the city states went to war with each other, it wasn't necessarily a given that the Spartans would win. In fact, the Athenians roundly defeated them on more than one occasion.
1: Yeah, so maybe this is a matter of of, of the reputation being more formidable than the the the, uh, the actuality of it.
4: Their most famous battle is a defeat, right? So is – but the way it's framed now is that it's a sacrifice that allows the greater war to be won. And so is there a part of our military culture today that is kind of feeding into that, like feeding into the idea of sacrifice?
1: Um, uh, You know, I think that may be – I think that may be part of it. It may be that the military and Kevin and Derek can speak to this more than than I can. It may be that the military feels that that's what they're being asked to do, right? That they're being asked for these profound sacrifices that maybe they think their own society doesn't appreciate or maybe isn't aware of. And that this is a narrative that allows people to make sense of what they're being asked to do and maybe motivates them and keeps them motivated. I mean, if you think about, you know, being in Afghanistan for 17 years, being in Iraq, being in other places, and it's not really clear that uh, there's support on the home front or even knowledge on the home front about what's going on Um and that distance, that sense of disconnection that many vets, especially coming back, have a sense uh, when they're reengaging with American society. So maybe that that kind of mythos or that mythology, like, gives a sense of meaning and and, and gives them a sense that this is what they're being uh, asked to do, especially in a context where they may not feel like it's appreciated, Um but on the other hand, I think in American history, and I think Kevin can speak to this better than I can. I think the the discourse of the you know the small you know band of brothers, you know, fighting the tide of of evil that kind of good and bad dynamic, um, all of you know the the being the underdog and being outnumbered. I think all of those are are themes that echo, at least in. In, in our understanding of, of how we think about American history and the American experiment. And so I think there are also sort of deep resonances that don't have to do with Spartan society have to do with this idea of, you know, a small elite, uh, a band that's, that's facing overwhelming odds. It's, it's Henry and his boys at Agincourt, you know, it's the American, you know, revolutionists. You know, fighting the the greatest empire of the day. So I wonder if it's it's some of that as well.
3: I can I can answer from the elite side. If basically what you just explained is is literally what's pumped into us in special operations and special forces is that we're a small, highly trained, highly skilled group of individuals being asked to stem the tide, if you will, up into and giving our own life. And we do feel like. The majority of the of, of our society, to include the United States, takes that for granted for us. It's this, we've romanticized the 300 sacrifice because of the movie specifically, because a lot of us learned about the Gates of Fire from the movie 300. I'm the first to tell you I had no idea of the story. I knew of the graphic novel, but I didn't know it was an actual true story. But but in in the Green Berets, and I can tell you in rain in the Rangers and the other special operations, is that we do feel that way. We feel very elitist, also, because you go through hell to get to the end to get a you know to be qualified to do these these clandestine you know special forces jobs and. It's, it's the same thing that if, of, of what you said, it's like we feel that our life, we're, we are prepared to give our lives for our, uh, you know, to, for our empire. You know, the king, the, the king has asked us to sacrifice ourselves to protect our home and, and, uh, you know, families and women and children. And we, we feel like we're jumping into this breach willingly to do that. And it's, it's different. I mean, I know, I know when I was in the, in the middle of this, when I was, in the height of my special forces, you know, career, we did look not so much down at regular army troops, but almost towards like a superior, we, we felt superior to them because it's the same thing that happened with the, the, the scene in 300 is like, how many warriors have you brought? Well, all of us are, that's our jobs because in special forces, specifically the green berets, you're a gunfighter first. That's what you do. You're a gunslinger first. Your secondary job, I, like for me, being a medic, that's your secondary job. You fight first versus the regular military. It's like, okay, that's a, that's a pack clerk. That's a medic. He's a, you know, you know, you understand there's different jobs and that's what they train specifically on to do. They're all, even in their combat arms, they have that, but it's that, and we do, we come home and we feel like, you know, I was prepared to give my life for you and for this country. And it, you just kind of feel like this disconnect and it also there's a and especially for special operations guys coming out like I did getting out like you you're no longer elite and you spent so long feeling like you're this spartite the the chosen of the chosen to protect the empire and then all of a sudden you're you know, you're pumping your own gas and somebody's telling you to, you know, you have to pay taxes and all this. Do <laughs> you know you get my point? It's just like you just it just draw the, the bottom kind of drops out. It's just, so that's why they, they they romanticize that. It's the discipline, it's the this is what you train for every day. Your your job is a professional, you're you're a professional warrior. And that's I think that's why we we kind of cling to that 300s this is Sparta, you know, masculine, you know type of, this is what you were bred to do. You've been chosen, right? You know, you go through the qualification courses of special operations. You didn't get thrown off the mountain. You've been chosen to become a Spartan. Like, and now then your training begins. So it's, it's kind of like, I can see how that romanticized version of, you know, the Spartan ethos, the, in this being a Spartan, you know, being a Spartan itself, has kind of really kind of dug its, its, its claws into the, the, the fabric of special operations. I can totally see that. But it's kind of gotten out of control and it's bled out over to the regular units like the 173rd, uh, you know, third, third ID. Everyone's got some sort of amalgamation or derivation of, of the Spartan helmet and, and the Spartan ethos to include like, you know, Marine special operations and everything else like that. So I, it's, it's fascinating to hear this, this point of view from you because now I feel I, I was going to talk a lot of shit about it, but now I'm like, wow, she's actually talking about me. I feel really bad right now. You know, I, I okay, I'm i like, yeah, okay. That's, you know, but that, I, that's, that's my point with this. It's, 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 I can see why this is so deeply ingrained specifically into the elite units of the United States military. I can see why.
1: Cuz it fills an, it it clearly fills some kind of of need, right? Or it it mm-hmm. helps people make make sense of their experience or it's motivating or it helps them understand who they are and what they're doing, right? You wouldn't, you know, these things don't evolve without some kind of reason behind them.
3: Yeah, I agree I agree. I mean y- y- Specifically, when I was in in fifth group, fifth group is called the fifth legion. So, our, our, we, we kind of lean heavy onto the, the legion. We call each other legionnaires, right? We're the, we're the, we're the V legion or the fifth legion. Um, and then there's, there's this, you know, the specialized units within that legion that consider themselves the, the Spartites or Praetorians, if you will, of the legion and we just go through this this thing like oh my god you know you're a direct action unit you're you're a, you know commander's in chief and extremist force well you're a praetorian you're a you're a spartite you should wear the praetorian shield on your armor and you just slap it on there cuz it looks tough you know you're like yeah ha, ha. you know i'm in iraq and i got a a spartite shield on my you know this motivational patch on your shield and you're standing next to your you know regimental uh, chaplain, which is hilarious, because on both sides of his helmet are a crusader shields. Like both sides of the chaplain's helmet had crusader patches on the side of them, and we're just okay. We're getting way too into this us versus them type of thing. It's just like you know, let's 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 talk about that a little bit because because
4: I, uh, I think that's there's an idea that maybe some of this is, especially for me, the civilian in the room, maybe a little creepy. Maybe a little dangerous.
5: I have thoughts on this uh, specifically, and I'm not the first one to bring this up. But uh, one of the things I think that's interesting about Sparta and some of the military people that I know of who like to promote Sparta talk about how the military is the chosen guardians of democracy. But Sparta itself was in many ways not particularly democratic And sometimes the people who espouse this loudest, and I know some people in the special ops community who might not necessarily want to hear me say this, uh, but they do kind of see themselves as being the ones who didn't get get thrown off the mountain, and maybe everybody else should have been. Uh, Uh, Yep. Pause real quick. I
4: want to make sure that the audience understands what we've referenced it a couple of times. uh, What we mean when we say didn't get thrown off the mountain, we're talking about in in Spartan culture, I believe this is historically true too, like if a baby was born with birth defects, it was getting hurled off the mountain, literally.
5: They didn't actually literally get hurled off the mountain. That's what happened in the movie. They would be left at the base of a mountain um, yeah. to see if they would die of exposure. And if they weren't, if they don't die of exposure, then they'll give them a second chance. But if they do, then they're just dead. They weren't good enough to be a Spartan.
4: Okay, I'm sorry. Thank you for just clarifying that. Please continue. I hope I didn't throw you off.
5: Oh, no, not too badly. But, I I mean, we were kind of getting to the end of my point there. Uh, I think there is a feeling, and this is not special operations-centric either. This is a feeling that I think has permeated aspects of our all-volunteer force, um, wherein veterans, when they, some veterans, when they get home, genuinely feel that they are better. Um, and more important than the society that they serve and that perhaps the society should be serving them and not the other way around. And I'd definitely love to hear what Pauline and uh, Derek have to say about that.
1: Um, I, I would agree with that. Actually, I have a, um, a, a chapter in my next book, which is on obedience, about what I call military veteran exceptionalism. And it's precisely kind of that response. Um, and it is, you know, I I would say it's it's not everyone, but it is it is some veterans, and and I think that you know when you're steeped in that kind of elitism, I mean, I think it's 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 a small step from we're we're elite and awesome and 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 trained and whatever else. It's a small step then to look back at your society and say members of my society are not. And therefore, that makes me better or that makes us better. And really, do they deserve our protection? I mean, what have they done, especially for some people coming back? The the apathy or the disengagement of, of civilians like myself, I, I think people find that really disorienting. I mean, Sebastian Younger's, you know, The Tribe uh, is, is a great book. Um, it sort of talks about that experience. So I think that military civilian disconnect, um, you know, I think it's always been there to some degree, but I think you could argue it's gotten it's gotten worse in some ways. And if you add the the, the elitism and the, the worship of the sort of Spartan culture, which is really not, I mean, Kevin's right, Sparta was not a, was not a democracy. They had a very different civilian military relationship, you know, that, than we do. In 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 our system, the military uh, works for the civilians. They they're servants, um, caretakers of, of of the state. I would say, you know, uh, stewards in a in a certain way. Um, but that's a different that's a different kind of relationship. Servants aren't above the, the people that they're serving, and, and so when that shift happens, and people start to think of themselves as as above the people that 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 they were there to serve, then I think it can be, I think it can be very dangerous. And I think people, uh, there are a lot of, uh, commentators on civilian military relations who, and I mean, Rick's, Tom Ricks pointed this out 20, 30 years ago in making the core this dynamic, this is the same dynamic that in other nations has led to, has led to military coups, which is not to say that will happen in this country, but, that's why people are concerned about you know this this elitism the gap and and sort of what it what it means for civilian military relations both for for uh sort of active duty but then what happens when veterans leave the service and and now you see people very active on social media and they've you know people have sort of found a sense i think of that continuing community, it used to be when you got out of the service, I mean, you might keep in contact with a, a few close friends, but that that sort of uh, sustaining that connection was more limited to your, you know, to your veteran association um, or when you got together for reunions. And now with social media, it can be maintained sort of 24-7.
3: Absolutely. The vet bro movement has is probably single-handedly one of the worst Things to happen to the veteran community. It absolutely is the most, it's, it's absolutely terrible because Pauline, you're absolutely right. When you get out of the military, if we didn't have social media, you wouldn't have the vet bro movement. You wouldn't have guys wearing Mulan La, oh my God, Mulan LaBe, everything. And I, you know, I am the storm stand behind me t-shirts or I'm a dysfunctional veteran because that social media has perpetuated this. And then in fact, it's kind of driven the military, the veteran civilian, uh, you know, kind of integration. It's just divided it even further. I, I'll give you an example. I'm old, right? I'm an older guy. And I think when, when I remember when 300 came out and a lot of the elite more tier one units that we were affiliated with and actually did work with. Started adopting Mulan Labe. Right, Derek, I'm sorry to cut you off.
4: I want you to tell the audience what that means, but first I want to take a break real quick. Derek, you were about to tell us what Mulan Labe means.
3: Well, what Mulan Labe Mulan Labe means is is in in general means come and take it, right? And they were talking about their lives. They were talking come and if you if you're so it was almost like a, you know, Mulan Labe, come and take it. Like you you want this. Patch of dirt, come and get it, because we were we were fighting in Iraq and Mulan Labe, and I remember having in 2005 my first deployment to Iraq. You know, we a lot of us were given these tabs that said Mulan Lobby, and I absolutely loved it because as a younger barrel chest self ascribed, mind you, barrel chested freedom fighter, I'm like, yeah, totally right. I'm going to throw this on there. I'm just it's 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 more. I felt more of like it was a psychological value, and then I came home and the the ants the, the the Second Amendment people started taking it and just perverted it to something else and it's just like nope and just took it off my armor because now it's become a politicized thing and that's because this we in the early two thousands and mid early to mid two thousands we were trying to romanticize the war and it became hyper focused because it felt like every three weeks a Navy SEAL book was coming out. them so was like, "Oh my god, these guys are the elite. These guys are our Spartans. Look at this!" Like. And then the t-shirt companies and then the coffee companies and the tea companies and the, the, the finger widget company. Everything was, you know, special ops, you know, you know, coffee or whatever it was. And it's just, it's just turned into this like capitalist money grab. And it's affected a lot of guys getting out. You mentioned Sebastian Unger's book. Uh, that is a great book. I think it should be required reading for anyone separating from the military because we are desperately looking for a tribe and if you find it on social media and you're you're mentally just not understanding how to transition into the civilian world there's a lot of people that will tell you like look you don't have to you fought for this country they should they should be and i'm gonna use you know they should be kissing our ass type of thing and people will there's, oh my God, you serve this country. But the minute I saw some Coast Guard reservists, and I'm not, okay, I love you guys. I love you. I know you didn't get paid. Thank you for working without money. But the minute I see a Coast Guard reservist running around with a, you know, multicam hat that says, come and take it, it kind of devalues, again, in Pauline, you mentioned this, it kind of devalues the feeling that, that elite feeling that you have. Like, why does he have that? I'm, I'm a Green Beret. He, I, I'm elite. He just rides around on the boat, kind of thing, and just kind of that, it's that mill, it's that mill vet bro you know, movement that's really, has really kind of started eating this. And they, they only just take portions of the meal. They don't take it all. Like, you know, Sparta was the greatest place ever. That's all it was, was warriors and, and e- e- extremely attractive women with like grotesque men named name the Oracle with, you know, gorgeous women dancing around them. It's just, it's, that's not how American society is set up at all. It, it, it isn't at all. Like you, you come out thinking that you're, you know, you're, This elite warrior and it's it's, somebody at 7-Eleven tells you to move your truck. You're like, Oh, okay. I guess I'm not elite. You know, no one's, no one's bending the knee for me. And it's, it's, that's why the Milvet bro movement is so toxic. I think to the veteran community and it's, it's steeped in this. It's steeped in this weird elitist, you know, kind of Spartan kind of mentality that's my feeling i mean it's my opinion I, I don't really know if it's true or not but
5: i mean i think this starts even earlier than when people separate though too um i i remember a commissioning ceremony at uh, plu uh my alma mater that i was going to go see uh seeing a bunch of young cadets who were uh, becoming fr- uh second lieutenants and i remember the colonel uh knew, i'm not gonna use his name <laughs> um i've I've got mixed feelings about him not all negative uh pauline knows who it is but he expounded upon and was telling these young officers that they are the modern day spartans uh and kept saying that you know you are the modern day spartans you you represent the best of the society you are the best americans and when he kept saying you were the modern day spartans i remember just looking at him and thinking god i hope
1: not and why is that Kevin? (laughs) what what is it that, that you were reacting
5: to. Well, I just, I think I'm concerned about everything that Derek was just talking about there. Um, and what I kind of touched on earlier, which is our military becoming more and more separated from the society it serves and becoming a separate society within a society. Um, that concerns me.
4: It seems like this specific myth is less dangerous than the way it's being deployed. Mm. Then is kind of the gist I'm getting from the conversation.
1: I mean, all myths are separated from actual history, but I mean, Spartan society functioned because you had an underclass, the helots, who were essentially slaves, right? So, you know, sparta Sparta is not a is not a democratic republic. They don't have civilian control of the military. So, I think mythology and, and a mythos can be useful, but I think it can also you can push it too far i mean at the end of the day members of the military even elite members of the military are still you know bound by the norms and values of of a professional military there's military professionalism there are norms and values that come from that community sparta does not define military professionalism so you know as a professor of military ethics that's i think Along with the sieve mill gap, that's also my concern is that you're sort of substituting another normative structure for one that's already there. There is a normative structure that tells you who you are, what your obligations are. You take oaths of office. Um, You know, there's a there's a way in which we think about our military and there are moral obligations our military has that true other members of society don't have, but we have a way of thinking about that. It's called military professionalism. Um, And so this sort of overlaying of the Spartan myth on top of that, I think that's also where it can become problematic because then it's replacing uh, in many ways, the other, you know, normative structure of things like core values and, you know, the oaths that people take and, um, all of those kinds of uh, commitments. So I think, you know, or they could at least come into competition with one another. Picking
5: backing off of that, I also want to say something about history and context that I think is also particularly interesting when we think about Sparta. Um, just like with anything in antiquity, a lot of what we understand about it is our own best guess of history. This was a long time ago. Um, and a lot of what we actually know about the Spartans we get from the Athenians because they were the ones who actually recorded history. You know, they'd had art and science and they wrote things. Um, Spartan society didn't really record their history. Most of what we have is secondhand because they've apparently geared their society entirely toward war. They didn't really make a lot of advances in science or the arts or these other things that we associate with the other uh, Greek city-states like the thespians. And, a lot of those other city states were actually present at the battle of Thermopylae too. They fought there too. And, uh, had that last stand. Sparta was not alone. It's interesting that we associate them being like the ultimate in terms of that. But in many ways they were a poorer society in those ways. And they often lost battles to their more well-rounded neighbors.
4: And let me ask what may be a foolish question. Um, how much of this myth-making do y'all think comes down to a movie that was released in 2006?
3: (laughs) I think it, I think it's a massive resurgence. I think that movie, I'll I'll give you an example. Okay. When that movie came out, I was at Fort Bragg. Okay. And I was in, we were, I was in special forces at the time I was at Fort Bragg. We're going through training and the movie came out and, all of us were like, "Let's go! We're gonna go see 300! Ooh, kind of thing, right? And we all went, and we got to the movie theater. And I'm telling you right now, it was probably 99.9 percent white, young white m- military age males, right? Well, interspersed persons of color, but the majority was young white military age males. We all met as a group, and two of the guys of the group decided to go in cosplay, right? Spartans showing up in the helmets. And now of course these guys it was any excuse to take off their clothes because they're of course these dudes are chill according to them were just chiseled and abs galore and everything. So they're just they're just walking around in downtown Fayetteville towards a movie theater to go see three hundred in like nothing but like a loincloth a shield they made out of cardboard and some helmet that they ordered from the from the internet and it just kind of blew up after that it was like it you know just a, a bunch of young military age males going to see this movie and then coming out feeling because feeling like i i can do this And it wasn't just SF guys. It was everybody. It was, you know, everybody that was, uh, in and around Fort Bragg. And it was a very popular movie. Me, though, I'm like, I, I don't want to walk in with these dudes. This is, this is just not my scene. I mean, I'm all about it. I, I I don't, I like Star Wars, but I don't go to Star Wars movies dressed as Boba Fett. Do you know what I mean? I just don't do that, but that's just an example. And I think it after that, that movie, it was became a deployment movie too. Like if you go down range, there's always like 300 on a DVD and people are watching it. And I will say this, I think, I think with all the, with all the negatives that I feel that like that movie and this, the Spartan culture within the military or the Legion or the Roman culture, the, you know, the SPQR tattoos and everything. I think it, I think it adds value. I think it adds value. I think it, it's, it, it's, it's team camaraderie. It's, it, it's a motivational patch. It, it, it means something. Like I said, it's, it's there, it's a mascot of sorts. You know, some of us don't go to college, but we're in the military, and this 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 is something that you will defend. This this Mulan Labé scroll is something that you will defend. This Spartan helmet, this this image, is you. That's who you are, and you kind of just cherry pick of what what the the you know the ethos of what you're talking about kind of comes out. It just you just kind of turn it into a manly. You know, elite masculine thing, and, I, and I'm saying masculine, not just specifically for men. I mean, women women serve in units that are under the auspice of the Praetorians and and legions and Spartans as well. I think, it I, but I do think that 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 movie just had a massive resurgence of the Spartan, you know, aura, if you will.
5: I think that's true, but I I know for a fact that it started even before that movie within. Yeah. Within professional circles, because I think you can't understate um, Stephen Pressfield's uh, Gates of Fire, um, a book that's been on professional reading lists for officers for years. And pretty much all the academies, some of them, I think, require cadets to read that book. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, Kevin's right about the Pressfield book. So I think but I, I also think Derek is right The the impact of the movie, I think, taken with that book there was a ready audience when the movie came out i think it just reinforced sort of you know for many people especially if you think about when that movie came out right Right. you know and the the themes of you know you know a few standing against evil of, of of freedom against oppression all of those kinds of things are very are are primed You know, Victor Davis Hanson, who's a somewhat controversial historian and classicist, was an advisor on that film. And so the way that film is parsed is in a way that will hook right into both Pressfield's book and just, you know, how Americans view themselves. So I think, um, you know, and and you add the masculinity piece to it. You know, I think people were sort of primed for that to to make a big, big hit and be very influential and to tap into something that really you know felt real and authentic to people.
4: Tell us what the Pressfield book is. I'm not familiar with it.
1: Uh, Gates of Fire is basically a sort of I mean it's not fictionalized, but it's Pressfields, you know it's it's an account of the bottle the Battle of Thermopylae, but it's not you know I wouldn't you know it's not historical fiction but it's not what we think of as academic history. Either, but it's very readable. It's very accessible. It's very sort of vivid, fairly short. It's been on professional reading lists for a really long time. And and Pressfield has several other books about the warrior ethos and about the Spartans. and And he's someone who's very um, he's very influential in, in in military circles. And and those books. But especially the Gates of Fire, they're books that people that people read, um, and so those also, I mean, literature and movies form how we think about things and how we um, how we experience war. So, I mean, we know from Vietnam that people going into Vietnam had watched all these World War II movies, and that that conditioned how they thought about war, and that's what they were expecting. So, I mean, these these artifacts can have you know, a great deal of power in framing and influencing how people think about themselves and think about what's, what's happening to them.
4: Is there anything to admire about the Spartans or is it something that should be set aside?
1: Um, I think, I mean, I think there's a great deal to admire about the Spartans. I think certainly the, the discipline piece is, is, is important. Um, the idea of, you know, being willing to, as long as we understand that for the spartans the warriors were they were servants of their society they were asked by their society to go you know and and defend sparta and i think if if we understand it in that way i think there's value to this this idea of, of sacrifice uh, certainly that and this is a famous scene in the film too and the the queen says come back you know with your shield or on it and of course in Spartan society that meant come back come back on your shield meant come back dead honorably dead or come back with your shield meant that you hadn't broken the phalanx line and the phalanx line is how how the Greeks fought and so what that meant is go and fight honorably and I think that that has value. We want people to fight honorably. I teach military ethics. We want people to, you know, follow the the, the rules, uh, international law. We want them to follow the the values and 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 constraints of military professionalism. So if we think about maybe the Spartan values as a as a, as a shot in the arm or as an augment to military professionalism, um, I, I think it can be really useful if it replaces that or becomes a rival for that. Then I think that's where that that's where we might have concerns. And I do think the the concerns that both Derek and Kevin have raised about to what degree does it increase civilian military uh, gap, I think, is a is a real question, especially with the the military vet bro movement, right? To the degree that that it's increasing uh, separation, I think that's problematic because on that on that front, the Spartans had different uh, values than we did. So I think we have to look at well, where do we share values? Where are values that can support who we are as Americans? And, and and who the American military is great, but we also have to recognize that there are po- going to be points of departure too. Yeah,
3: I, I agree with Pauline, and I absolutely believe that this these ideas of this of, of a professional of professional savagery, if you will, because the Spartans were professional soldiers. They knew how to fight and kill and win. I think that's absolutely important. Now again I'm leaning towards more of the specialized eliteer types of, types of unit but that 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 discipline and understanding that you are trained to kill but you're professional about it you know that professional savagery I think that's very important the, but what's more important specifically with with in regards to you know ethic uh, you know in regards to ethics is you need to modernize it this this there needs to be a sort of like a updated 21st century version version of this of the of the modern of the modern day Spartan there there has to you have to have men and women that are willing to jump into the breach and and do what needs to be done there needs to be professional savages but there also needs to be a metered approach to that you need to understand how to back away from it and how to turn it on uh, I think it's very important I think it's very I think the Pressfield's book should still stay in required reading Uh, but you know, it should be buffered with one tribe at a time. You know, you don't want brand new second lieutenants reading just gates of fire and going, I'm like, okay, these are all my Spartans and we're going to, you know, we're going to go ahead and and do this type of, type of thing. You know, it's like, we're going to destroy and kill and and do everything. You, You got young, impressionable minds in the, in the regular military that need this discipline, but also need to understand that, you know, there's a, there's an update to it type of, if that makes sense.
4: Uh, Pauline Corinne, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about this. Uh, You you mentioned that you've got an upcoming book. Uh, Do you know what it's called and when it's coming out?
1: Uh, It's coming out in 2020 on the U.S. Naval Institute Press, and it's on obedience. The title is still sort of to be determined.
4: We'd love to have you back on when it's out and talk about it. Absolutely. That's all for this week. Angry Planet listeners, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell, was created by myself and Jason Fields. Uh, I hope you liked this little uh, episode. Thank you for giving us a break over the past uh, two months. It's been pretty hectic uh, for the news industry, as I'm, as I'm sure many of you would understand, but we have kept up with the premium episodes and will continue to. Uh, there will be another one this Friday. If you like to sign up, Go to angryplanetpod.com. Kick us $9 a month to get two premium episodes. We will be back uh, next week with a conversation about cyberpunk on an angry planet. What is happening with this show?